welcome to episode 168 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's Word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want to ask you, do you lack a passion for prayer? Well, let's dive in and talk about it. If you spend any length of time in the church, you realize that prayer is important. And yet, while we all know that, how many of us actually have a passion for prayer? Sure, sure, sure. I mean, we might pray before our meals and maybe even pray before we go to bed. And, you know, we might spend 15 minutes in the morning praying. But how many of us can genuinely say that we have a passion, a burden for prayer? In Isaiah 59, God is speaking and he says, Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that is a great description of what is going on in culture today. That righteousness stands afar off. Justice is turned back. Lawlessness is in the streets. Fear is encroaching everywhere. But look at a couple of verses later in verse 16, and maybe this is even more sad than the reality of where Isaiah's culture was at. Isaiah makes a declaration that God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor, that God is looking at the landscape of Isaiah's day and he's seen all this craziness and lawlessness and unrighteousness and a lack of justice and truth has fallen in the street, but yet God's eyes are looking to and fro for whom? He's looking for an intercessor. He's looking for someone to stand in the gap. He's looking for someone who will be burdened for those issues and literally take it to God in prayer and intercession. Now, we realize that Jesus is the ultimate intercessor. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 reminds us, it says, Therefore, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That God is the intercessor. And yet we, being filled with the very spirit of God, are to be lowercase i intercessors. We are called to be intercessors. Yes, Jesus is the intercessor. But you realize that as the body of Christ that we are called to carry the burden that God has for this world. Ian Bounds has written a lot on prayer. I love what he says. Uh, This is one of my favorite Ian Bounds quotes. Ian Bounds says it this way. These days of ours has a desperate need of a generation of praying men, a band of men and women through whom God can bring his great and his greatest movements more fully into the world. A breed of Christian is greatly needed who will seek tirelessly after God, who will give him no rest day and night until he hearkens unto their cry. These times demand praying men who are all a thirst for God's glory, who are broad and unselfish in their desires, quenchless for God, who seek him late and early, and who will give themselves no rest until the whole earth be filled with his glory." If that was true back in Ian Bounds' day, back in the 1800s, how much more so in today's culture, in today's world? 
So let me ask you, do you have a passion for prayer? Not, not that you just, you know, spend a few moments every day praying, but have you been acquainted with the burden of God? Have you felt his agony for the culture of the world around us? I love looking back at Christian history and just realizing some of these great men and women who tirelessly went after Jesus in prayer. And let me just give you a couple illustrations. There's a great man back in the last generation called Thomas Hare. He was a friend of A.W. Tozier. And listen to what A.W. Tozier says about Tom Hare in terms of his prayer life. Now, I'm not reading this to you so that you can emulate it. So please recognize that we're not saying we all need to be like Thomas Hare. In fact, these are just merely illustrations of what God has done with individuals. So God needs to shape you specifically as a man or a woman of prayer. But let these illustrations be just an encouragement and maybe as a place of conviction when it comes to this idea of prayer. So here's what A.W. Tozier said about Thomas Hare. He said, The two characteristics that mark Tom Hare as unusual are his utter devotion to prayer and his amazing spiritual penetration. Three months after his conversion, when he was 16 years old, Thomas formed the habit of praying four hours every day. This practice he followed faithfully for many years. Later, he added one all-night prayer session each week. In 1930, these weekly all-night prayer times were increased to two. And in 1948, he settled down to the habit of praying three nights of every week. He gets along on very little sleep. In addition to the three nights each week that he stays awake to pray, he is frequently awakened in the night seasons by a passage of scripture or a burden of prayer that will not let him rest. And almost always, Thomas says, the Lord wakens me early in the morning to pray. I don't know about you, but that is incredibly convicting. I don't know too many 16-year-olds who are willing to spend even 15 minutes in prayer, let alone hours upon their knees. Now, again, don't take this as a prescription. God may not be calling you to the same lifestyle as Thomas Hare. He was able to get on very little sleep. Others of us, like myself, need a little bit more than a couple of hours of sleep every night. But realize that regardless of your personal situation and what you are doing and what you're called to and whether you have a full-time job or whether you can just stay at home, the reality is we all need to have a burden, a passion for prayer. When I think of prayer, one of my favorite people that comes to mind is Leonard Ravenhill. Leonard Ravenhill just had a fiery zeal for prayer. So here's what one man said about Leonard Ravenhill's prayer life. Leonard's passion for God fueled his prayer life. He was often in prayer hours each day. Many men have talked about the amount of time Ravenhill spent in prayer. There is no need to try to calculate it. The reality is it was often consistent and hours every day. Prayer was not a part of his life. It was his life. I can still remember Leonard saying to me, quote, I don't want to meet a man who has written more books than me or is a better preacher than me or who has preached to more people than me. I want to meet a man who has more of God on his life than I do. That's what I long for, unquote. Unlike most preachers today, Leonard spent more time with God alone than he did with anyone else. What a great statement of a man's life. That it wasn't just, you know, he's a great preacher or, wow, he wrote some great books, which he did. 
It's that he was a man of prayer. I love men like John Praying Hyde. In fact, he was a man of such prayer that they called him Praying Hyde. That it was kind of his nickname, Praying Hyde. John Hyde's name was Praying Hyde. What would it look like to be a, a man or woman who was so acquainted with the richness of prayer that not just the quality of prayer, but the quantity of prayer that your nickname became praying so-and-so. Another great prayer of time past was a man by the name of Edward Payson. And Ravenhill often talked about Edward Payson. And this is what Ravenhill said about Payson. Ravenhill says, Edward Payson, better known as the praying Payson of Portland, was another great prayer warrior. He used to kneel at the side of his bed and pray and pray and pray. When they washed his body for burial, they found great big pads on his knees like a camel has. Tradition says that the Apostle James had camel knees, but it is a living fact that Payson had them. When they were washing him, somebody said, What abnormal knees? They're heavy with calluses. That's because he used to pray at the side of his bed with energy, and he wore two grooves six or seven inches long into that hardwood floor where he used to pray and make intercession. Can you imagine the labor of prayer it must take, not just to grow calluses on your knees, but to create these grooves in the hardwood floor in the very place that you prayed? Now, there's nothing extra special about kneeling to pray. In other words, one of my good friends, Eric Ludi, you know, the moment that he kneels to pray, he tends to fall asleep. So if you're ever in a prayer meeting with Eric, he tends to pace. He's just walking back and forth, and that keeps his mind alert and his energy up so that he can do the wrestling, the intensity of praying. So there's not a formula for prayer. And again, the, these illustrations are not meant just to convict us, though I kind of hope that God does, but rather they're illustrations of what it means for someone to give their life to prayer. Probably one man most known for prayer throughout the centuries, at least the last several centuries, was David Brainerd. David Brainerd and his journals has been a deep encouragement to a lot of the great men and women throughout the last several centuries and just their his prayer life affecting their prayer life. And if you read David Brainerd, and, and it is a little hard, it's obviously a little, a little old in terms of the language. And it's also, you know, he had a kind of a melancholy temperament. So a lot of times you're reading, you're just, it's hard to read just because he's kind of depressed all the time. But when you look at David Brainerd's grasp of prayer and just his passion for God and for prayer, it is so overwhelming and so convicting. Lately, I've been spending a lot of time pondering revival. And it's interesting that when you look at all the major revivals that have happened down through the ages, there seems like there are three things that are always associated with revival. That when there's a big movement of God, three things are evident. Number one, there is a return to the word of God. That people begin to humble themselves under the authority of the word of God. That preachers begin to take the word of God and lift it up as the standard, as the authority, as, as it is, in fact, the word of God. So there is this fresh unction in the preaching and declaration of God's word. Number two, there is always repentance. That especially the believers they allow the Holy Spirit to search and try their hearts and bring about deep repentance, that they actually see conviction as a good thing, that condemnation, of course, is not of God, but conviction is actually a spiritual work of God to refine and to purify the life of a believer. But the third thing found in every single revival is you always find men 
or women who have given themselves to prayer. That prayer always precedes revival. And in our day and age, we are desperate for revival. We are desperate for light to invade the darkness. So what is that going to take? Well, we need to come back to the word of God. We need to allow God to bring a deep repentance in the church. I mean, as the bride of Christ, we have prostituted ourselves with the world. And as the prophets wrote in the Old Testament, there was this beckoning of, hey, come out from the world and be purified and set apart. Well, that is the same message to the church today. In fact, when you look at Jesus' last message to the church in the book of Revelation, the last thing Jesus told the church is, repent, that we've lost our first love. But then we also must be men and women of prayer. I find it so fascinating in Luke chapter 11. Here, the disciples, they've been with Jesus for a couple of years, and they've seen the, the miracles, they've seen the ministry, they've seen his teaching ability and his preaching But the disciples don't ask Jesus how to do any of those things. Now, maybe Jesus taught them. We don't have any record of that. But we do have record of one thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them. And again, it wasn't to do miracles. It it wasn't how to preach well. It wasn't how to communicate or tell stories as, as parables. The one thing that the disciples asked Jesus, hey, teach us this. It was how to pray. And when you look at Luke chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass, as Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he stopped, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Isn't it amazing that somehow the disciples who grew up as good Jewish kids knew how to pray. They knew knew the religious prayers. They knew the right things to say. And yet they were looking at the intimacy, the richness, the burden that Jesus had with the father and the disciples were looking at the prayer life of Jesus. And they said, we want that (laughs) Could you teach us how to pray. Now, I don't know how many people in the church today have this deep passion to learn prayer. We want the signs and the miracles and the wonders and how to sing better and how to preach eloquently and how to communicate and how to write books and how to be in the spotlight and how to create a YouTube channel. And see, we want all these things but we don't necessarily want prayer. Leonard Ravenhill often said, no man is greater than his prayer life. In fact, I love one of the statements that Ravenhill made. He said, hey, if you think someone's great, that's fine. Just let me spend some time with him and hear how he prays and I will really tell you what I think of him. In other words, the measurement of our life should be our intimacy, our communion with the God of the world. That it's not based on you know, how many books you've written or how great your preaching ability is or how wonderful your worship talent is. See, the measurement of a Christian should be how well do they know their God? How much time do they spend with their God? How obsessed are they with Jesus? Looking at the state of the church a generation ago, Linda Ravenhill said that the true man of God is heartsick. He is grieved at the worldliness of the church. He is grieved at the toleration of sin in the church. And he's grieved at the prayerlessness of the church. And if that was true a generation ago, how much more so right now? That there is so much worldliness and sin and prayerlessness in the church today. The bride of Christ is not a pure and spotless bride. And that's not to condemn the church. That is a a 
deep burden that God has been pressing upon me saying, we as the church, the body of Christ need to be awakened and press into the great realities of our bridegroom, Jesus. Samuel Chadwick, a great preacher from yesteryear, said, it would seem as if the biggest thing in God's universe is a man who prays. There is only one thing more amazing. That is, that man knowing this should not pray. Now, if that didn't make sense to you, let me hurry and explain it. Chadwick is saying that the greatest thing in all the universe is a man or a woman who prays. But there is something a little bit more amazing than that, than that truth. And that is quite amazing. And the one thing that's a little bit more amazing is once you know how amazing of a truth that is, once you know that the biggest and greatest thing in God's universe is a man or a woman who prays, is then not to pray. That it seems mind-boggling when you begin to recognize that, that the God of the universe, the one who spoke all things into existence, wants to commune and have intimacy and oneness with you. That God wants to be stirred in this, his relationship with you. And yet you decide, eh, I'm good. <laughs> I'll just pray before my meals and maybe a little bit before I go to sleep. And Chadwick says, how crazy is that? Uh, there's a man who wrote under the moniker Unknown Christian. And he said this about prayer. He says, if there are any regrets in heaven, the greatest will be that we spent so little time in real intercession. If there's one regret that we're going to have for all eternity, it's how little time we spent in prayer now. Ravenhill said a similar thing. He said, I believe most of us will need the tears wiped from our eyes when the books are opened at the judgment bar of God and our personal prayer record is read. See, we need to have a passion, a burden for prayer. Perhaps unlike any other time in the last several centuries, our world desperately, desperately needs men and women who will be willing to give themselves to labor in prayer. That we're not seeking after the popularity. We don't care about the applause. We, we don't care about any of that kind of stuff. What we want is to see the glory of Jesus Christ return. We want to see the bride of Christ be a pure and spotless bride. We want to see the tides of culture shifted. We want to see light coming into the midst of darkness. Would you be willing to be a man or a woman that God can give his burden, his passion for prayer to? Again, let me reread that Ian Bounds quote I read earlier. Ian Bounds said, These days of ours has a desperate need for a generation of praying men and women, a band of men and women through whom God can bring his great and his greatest movements more fully into the world. A breed of Christian is greatly needed who will seek tirelessly after God, who will give him no rest day and night until he hearkens unto their cry. These times demand praying men and women who are all a thirst for God's glory, who are broad and unselfish in their desires, quenchless for God, who seek him late and early, and who will give themselves no rest until the whole earth be filled with his glory. Would you be willing to be such a breed of Christian? Well, if so, can I encourage you to go spend time with Jesus and ask him to share his heart, his burden, and his passion for prayer with you? It's interesting to me that when Jesus went into the temple and he cleansed the temple, he said, this place is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And I don't think it's by accident that Paul 
in his epistles says, hey, do you not recognize that you are a temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you are the dwelling place of God? And if the dwelling place of God in Jesus's day was supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations, don't you think that your life in this day is supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations? Go spend some time with Jesus and have him share his burden, his zeal, his passion for you. Ask him to burden your heart for the things that burden his heart. Ask him that he would give you a great passion to spend time in prayer, not just to nod your head and not just to go through the motions and not just to, you know, check in and just, you know, kind of check it off your list for the day, but to live a life of prayer. We need a generation of men and women who will live a life of prayer. Well, that's one of the deep burdens that God has been placing upon my heart these last several weeks and months. I really pray that we as a band of believers would rise up and say, here I am, send me. Hey, if you're looking for an intercessor in this day and age when all the craziness is happening and and as Isaiah said, justice is turned back, righteousness is afar off, truth has fallen to the street, And yet, God, you've found no intercessor. God, let me be the one. And may we be intercessors in this day, in this hour, and for this critical season of the church. Well, I hope that just encourages you, impresses you into the reality of prayer. Again, don't take these examples as a pressing or as a prescriptive of what you were supposed to do. Seek the heart of God and say, God, how do you want to use my life as a life of prayer? And maybe it's going to look completely different from anyone else in human history. But would you be available to have a passion for prayer for such a day as this? Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. For show notes of this episode, including a list of all those quotes that I read earlier, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 168 for episode 168. Well, until next time. Know I am cheering you on and know that I am praying for you as we build our lives around Jesus Christ.